In old school games, life is cheap. Don't be a dope. Bring your pole, oil, and rope. And try not to go down in a heap. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Down in a Heap podcast. I'm your host, Rob, podcasting to you live from beautiful northeast Minneapolis. Well, who was that froggy-throated guy at the top of the show? Weird, but me. And it's a recording from a long time ago that <laughs> I didn't have access to. Um, I don't know, it just disappeared from my anchor library. But maybe now Spotify for Podcasters has <laughs> has uh, brought some of those things back from the ether or something. I don't know. I just, when I was going to select... Uh, a theme song for the for the show today. I just typed in a, a theme or whatever into my library to bring up a bunch of the different versions. And my old version, my original one, was at the bottom of the list. I thought, well, weird. But there it is, resurrected, or at least reincarnated, or something. So it's been, uh, well, the drought has continued here this summer. It started in uh, June. We've hardly had any rain in June. And then uh, it seems like every little line of broken thunderstorms that rolls across central Minnesota somehow manages to miss beautiful northeast Minneapolis. So even though there's been rainfall around the Twin Cities area, it seems like at my home, there's hardly been any. So it's, uh, I don't know, it's pretty troubling because last year, the the last part of summer was a terrible drought. And now after a fairly wet spring, which two, two years in a row now, it seems like we've had pretty wet springs, uh, summer has just turned into dust bowl days. So Lazy Rob appreciates it because I don't have to mow the lawn very often, but uh, I don't know. It can't be it can't be good long term for all the vegetation and farming and whatnot. So it's I'll uh, be hoping for rain here in the in the future. But you didn't tune in to listen to me drone on about the weather or anything like that. What's been up in gaming lately? Well, we played. Uh, Planet Eris game a few times now recently, face-to-face at Adam's place. Um, So that's been going on. We're planning on playing on Sunday as well. Adam won't be able to make it, but Brian and Keith are. And we're just, uh, last week, Keith couldn't make it. So I'm I'm just trying to plow ahead and just, if if there's two people available, two out of the three, I'm going to try and run the game. Otherwise... uh, We'll just get nowhere. And uh, back in June, I think late June it was, Jim, uh, the creator of Planet Eris, was in town and wanted to run a game. And so I joined in. Uh, He was running it over at a local watering hole, Manning's neighborhood bar restaurant. And uh, that was a lot of fun. It's it's always... um, interesting, I guess, I don't know, to play a one-shot kind of game. Keith actually has a character that he plays in various kind of connected one-shots that Jim does. So he's he has kind of an established character that he's played for years 
in uh, these these times when Jim comes back to town and stuff. And I think he played uh, this character in some con games too, like at North Texas and stuff. So he has a little bit of an attachment to that character, but I, on the other hand, didn't have any character high enough level for this adventure, so Jim just had me roll one up on the spot, and um, I made a, a ninth-level fighter. He just kind of randomly determined my level, and I I peaked out at the highest potential. <laughs> he was he had a three intelligence. <laughs> I don't I don't remember the last time I rolled a three when ca- uh, creating a character, but there you go. He had a three intelligence, um, and he had uh, some randomly determined magic items. One of which was a potion of plant control, <laughs> which I laughed about when I when we rolled it. But it was actually pretty useful in the scenario because there was um, a pretty extensive patch of yellow mold present, and we were able to use the potion of plant control to uh, to kind of make part of the patch of mold dormant and not release spores when we walked across it and stuff. So like most magic items, even if they don't seem particularly valuable in specific circumstances, they can spell the difference between success and failure. But ultimately we failed. Um, the scenario, uh, I think most of the characters died. I, I had to leave before the end of the scenario and I think my character was kind of thrown to the wolves or or died by circumstance, whatever. He was in the in the front of the party being a ninth level fighter with a, a lot of hit points and so he was taking a lot of the <laughs> the collateral damage. Um well and the direct damage. So but it it was fun. It's always fun to uh see Jim again and uh always fun to play with Keith and I got to meet a couple of new uh gamers and stuff too so good times but yeah playing uh, a one-shot game it almost in in a lot of ways almost feels like a completely different game to me than playing um, how I think role-playing games are best enjoyed by me and that is in a at least if if not a long-term campaign at least something that's going to go on for 20 sessions or something and there's this sense of a continuing um, through line with the same characters being played, or at least the same people playing the game and stuff, and uh, and you kind of building upon each session as you go with um, and creating more depth and interest in the game and the game setting and and stuff in this party of characters. So uh, that's something that I think. Uh, along with just being able to do whatever you want in game is what separates role playing games from from board games primarily but for just like a one off kind of thing honestly i i'd probably given the choice play a board game i enjoy rather than just one session of a role playing game and that's a big reason why i'm not all that gung-ho about going to a convention. I'd still like to go just to experience it. And um, one of these days, I'd especially like to go to either North Texas or Game Hall. And um, um, if for no other reason, just to kind of see other, like at North Texas, see some of the legends of the game and some of the current creators and stuff and meet them and, um, and see some of the 
the products in the dealer's room that maybe are a lot harder to get at least physical copies of and stuff. And yeah, I mean, I think that would be a lot of fun. Uh, and you know, just connecting with other, other people who, uh, enjoy the hobby, but the actual game part, part of it, I don't know. Yeah, it, I'm sure it'll be fun in the moment. It was fun playing this one shot with Jim and Keith and these other guys, but, uh, would we have had the same amount of fun playing a board game? I would have. So, whatever. <laughs> uh, let's see what else. I've I purchased a few things. I was this will uh, warm the heart of Jason over at Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I was able to find a uh, first edition player's handbook in pretty good shape over at the source. Uh, that's the one book from my first edition collection that I somehow managed to lose, or at least uh, is not apparent in the house. I've turned the house upside down looking for a couple different things. The other thing that I have no idea what happened to is my copy of B10, um, and I have no idea where that went. I have like the counters that came with it, but not the map, not the actual scenario itself so somewhere i'm going to come across some dusty box that has my AD&D player's handbook and b10 in it <laughs> but until then i found this copy which i was pretty excited to find i also picked up at half price books they had a a copy of risk europe um which seems kind of like a drilled down more advanced version of risk um, with kind of a medieval feel to it. It's definitely uh, seems to be a lot more involved than a regular risk game. But the main reason I bought it was $20, but it has a bunch of 22 millimeter figs, which um, in various colors and stances, um, kind of themes or whatever. So there's uh, footmen, there's cavalry, there's archers. There's various siege things, too, like a trebuchet, a catapult, a battering ram, a ballista. So, what are there? Four different colors? One, two, three. Yeah, there's four different colors. So, And who knows? Maybe I'll actually play it at some point or something. And Mary likes Risk, so maybe she'll like this uh, Risk Europe, too, or something. But for 20 bucks to get... A couple, I don't know if there's a couple hundred figurines in here or whatever um, that I might be able to use like a miniatures game or, or use at the D&D uh, table or something. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty decent investment. I might even be able to paint them if I ever, uh, well, who am I kidding? I'll never paint these things. <laughs> at least not. I won't paint them well. But uh, I also picked up a few more zines and adventures and stuff at the source they i buy them in part because they look cool but also because i want to keep i want the source to keep bringing these various small press uh, small creator projects into the store and stuff so if they just sit on the shelf and never sell well they won't keep they won't bring them in right so so i want to encourage them to keep doing that and that's going to be the focus of today's uh, podcast, too, is kind of a look into uh, a zine, Gary's Appendix, <laughs> issue one. 
uh, which I didn't buy. I bought this quite a while ago, and I've been meaning to kind of talk about it, uh, and we will today. Followed by a few calls, one from Jason, I think one or two from Jason, uh, from Nerds RPG Variety Cast, Daniel from Bandit's Keep, and a new caller, Joe from the Decahedron Podcast. But first, let's talk about Gary's Appendix. I forgot to mention, when Jim was in town, he happened to have one of his big poster maps of Planet Eris with him, and he kindly passed that along to me. So now I have a big poster map of Planet Eris, and it's very cool. So thanks, Jim. So, Gary's Appendix, a thoughtful zine for OSE, Volume 1. <laughs> when I first heard the, the name of this thing... I actually thought of Gary Gygax, like, ripping out his appendix. <laughs> so, um, but, of course, it's a nod to the appendices in the DM's Guide. In fact, in the back here, I'll read it. Gary's appendix is a collective effort by a creative menagerie to create a memorable zine for fantasy gamers. This is a first in a series of zines that explores the curious and fascinating parts of our beloved hobby in a way that is thought-provoking and useful. The inspiration for the zine is the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide. Gary wrote and collected a vast amount of information, rules, and guidance. Its haphazard nature and perplexing subjects make it as fresh today as when he penned the work almost 50 years ago. We do not have the audacity to believe that we can produce a work that matches that evergreen classic. We are partakers of the past who seek to share our work our journey, and our excitement about the hobby. So this is by Jeff Jones, who you've maybe listened to on his podcast, RPG Ramblings. It's an interesting weekly podcast where he usually has a guest on to talk about their Kickstarter or project or insight into the creative process. Um, and as the name of implies the conversation often rambles around and it's usually an enjoyable kind of hour of um you know something to to kind of have on and and uh yeah it's i like the podcast it's well done so jeff is listed as the layout writer editor and art director and then contributions from andrew trion t-r-y-o-n sorry if i'm mispronouncing that andrew Travis Miller, Zach Goins, G-O-I-N-S, and the proofreader, Megan Goins. Uh, it's got some art throughout, uh, notably by, like, J.E. Shields, um, but uh, some other, like, public domain and, uh, let's see, Peculiar Ruins. Jacob E. Blackman, Dean Spencer, Jeffrey... Coke or cock, K-O-C-H, and uh, Rick Hershey, Fat, Dra Fat Goblin Games. All right, so the contents of this zine, which is a... Now, I bought this at the source. Um, I think it was really only available via the Kickstarter in a physical form because on Drive, it is up on DriveThru as a PDF, and there's a second um, issue, too, which I haven't bought because that also is only a PDF, and uh, the source doesn't have that in a hard copy, but it's a saddle-stitched um, 
pretty heavy duty, uh, at least cover and paper, 44 page zine. So it's a, a pretty thick book booklet. And the topics, it's dominated primarily by what I think is going to be an ongoing series here, kind of a deep dive into the BX monsters, so in an alphabetical format. So in this issue, pages 1 through 28 are devoted to the monsters, quote-unquote monsters, the Acolyte, all the way up to the boar. And each installment has the the stats from, well, I guess it's OSE for the monster, an illustration, uh, an introduction, and, and then, like, uses for this particular monster or, like, human group in case of, like, acolytes and bandits and stuff like that. Um, possible scenarios of... Uh, strange facts for some of them, um, uh, in, highlighted in the corner, like a black bar with white lettering, is spore, so what you might find nearby that, um, is, kind of clues you into what they might, you know, alert the, the players to their presence, which I think is pretty cool. But, yeah, so there's what the Acolyte, White Ape, Basilisk, Bats, Bears, Beetles, the Berserker, Black Pudding, and Boar. Did I skip one here along the way? I was flipping through and I might have skipped one. But, um, yeah, I, I think this is really pretty cool stuff. It is some nice... Uh, food for thought for thinking about these monsters maybe in a slightly different way and incorporating them into a game setting um, or building a scenario around them or an encounter around them um, like a wandering monster entry around them or even as a, a faction within a, a area of the campaign setting so yeah that's I think that part is very well done the next section by Jeff Jones is called Unsettling Devotions, and it's a, a look into uh, various kind of cults, religions of his creation, and um, kind of delves into like the legend or theology and beliefs behind these cults, and how they might be dropped into a campaign setting, uh, how the worshipers might interact with the players or something. There's even things like, like the, here's the song of one of the, um, cults, iconography, um, like a poem and stuff for one of them, maxims. So yeah, this is pretty cool to, to have, um, as something to spice up throwing some weird chaos cult or some weird nature cult or something into your game. Uh, next article is called Chaos and Anatomy of Fun Encounters by Andrew Jason Treon. Um, it's essentially just looking at four different elements to an encounter. 
providing some tables to maybe um, give you uh, some um, some brain juice, give you a jolt or something, the creative juices, get them flowing. But to think about encounters from these four different standpoints, this, the, uh, the setting, the having a hard time holding my phone and flipping through here, environmental factors, monster actions, and set toys. So that's a pretty good article. Um, the next one, Wondering About Wandering Monsters by Travis Miller, I really enjoyed. This is uh, kind of a, a real a treatise on uh, why wandering monsters are valuable, how to implement them in the game, and to use the procedures to make them work properly in the game. Um, overall, just a really, I thought, a really good article that helped focus my um, thinking on wandering monsters as well. Uh, it echoes a lot of the thoughts that I've had or been informed by other people talking about them, but it's it's just pretty pretty cool to uh, to read this and have it focused and um, and put forward in a really cogent manner. So that, I thought that was a great article by Travis Miller, and then the last article, "The Costs of Sage Advice" by Zach Goins is. Um, a look at sages and using them in uh, in your game and creating a sages and uh, a simple method for determining what they might know, how their chances of success and uncovering or or just knowing uh, different pieces of lore that the that the players might go to them and try to find out, um, and then. Notes on, you know, determining things like their, their uh, particular specializations, what they might be interested in instead of uh, just payment in, in cash. Uh, so they might, you know, be interested in uh, um, rare or forgotten books from stealing a um, information from a rival or just like, um, creature comforts or something like that, instead of just requesting gold as payment or something. And then the, there's a list of six, like quick build sages. So there, while the DMG, the first edition DMG has a lot, an exhaustive kind of <laughs> look at sages, you can certainly use that. And then in conjunction, use this kind of simple method to to uh, build a sage and have this uh, this way of determining their success and stuff. It's um, it's a good article. So that's it. That's uh, Gary's Appendix One, a thoughtful zine for OSE uh, by Jeff Jones primarily. Um, yeah, you can find this in uh, on Drive Through RPG. I believe on his own site too. I'll try and find that and put it in the show notes or something. You can purchase the the physical edition and PDF through his website. Uh, I think with shipping, it ends up being something like $24, which eh, seems a little bit steep. I might just buy the, the PDF for issue number two via drive-thru or something. I paid $16 minus my discount at the source for this, and I thought this was well worth it, and uh, 
yeah, I'd, I'd recommend it at least, even if, you know, you just get the PDF, I think it's, um, a good read. So well done, Jeff Jones and company. And now let's move on to the calls I got in regards to my last episode, I think primarily on bugs and other various minutiae. Hey Rob, Jason here. Great episode. I paused it before you answer the calls on the I Hate Bugs episode to say that I really like the idea of using bugs as hazards or traps. Um, as you know, the my stance on the thief, replacing traps with bugs to a large degree sounds great to me. I don't think all traps should be replaced. You know, the Pink Phantom recently did an episode talking about traps and I called into them and mentioned that you know, I do like to have traps. For me, I like to have traps the players can figure out, you know, have those telltale signs and, and have a trap the player can logically talk through disarming or, you know, they can do it wrong, but it's not just a die roll. It's actually a thinking exercise, but they should be pretty far and few between. I don't want them all the time and bugs would kind of help fix that problem. So I, I think that's a great solution. Plus, like I say, it makes that pesky thief less useful. Um, as far as sketching out, you know, getting on the air and sketching out a wilderness area and going through the procedures, I love that idea. I'd love to hear you do that, you know, to, to walk us through your process. So if you're willing to do that, I know I, for one, would be very interested in that. And that, of course, was Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Thanks for the call, Jason. I always appreciate them. Yeah, I'm not advocating at all for eliminating all traps or replacing all traps with things like hazards, you know, bugs, whatever. Um, but I I am a, a DM that prefers to scale back the amount of traps that are in typical like D&D dungeons and stuff like that. I just, uh, yeah, I feel like for the most part, they do nothing really that um, that makes the game better. <laughs> I think they, for the most part, really bog down play. And if you are, I mean, I I tend to agree with you that I prefer having traps that are that are things that the players can logically work through and stuff, or or at least that the traps are in some kind of place that make some kind of sense uh i i am one that prefers a adventuring environment that the players can somehow comprehend and anticipate and plan for and uh, and just understand so in some kind of burial crypt or something that where they're trying to prevent tomb robbers from tampering with the the grave and the grave goods and stuff like that. Yeah, that makes sense to have traps there. But in some circumstances, it just makes kind of zero sense. But, but, but yeah, I mean, talking your way through it is great and stuff. It is kind of interesting that some people like that for dealing with traps, but then they don't like that when you require people to quote unquote role play, uh, 
you know, using your persuasiveness as a player, your player skill as a player in social interactions, and instead want to use a die roll for that, but don't want to use a die roll for traps. Not saying you're necessarily in that camp, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, the die roll speeds things up is one one positive, and but the but the biggest drawback I see to using traps as they're as they're done in a lot of classic adventures and stuff is that it creates this kind of mentality with players where they just turtle up and they want to examine everything. They're wary of everything. And if you're, you, if you're not using die rolls, if you are using, uh, players explaining how they're trying to find traps at every opportunity, it just slows the the pace of the game down to a to a snail's pace unless you just say all right this is our door opening procedure this is what we do at every dungeon door this is what we do when we enter any room we look up we <laughs> scan the room for any potential trip wires and blah 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 etc cetera, etc cetera. you know in which case i hope the dm is rolling for wandering encounters all the time if the players is if the characters are actually wasting this much time and that they're ticking off time passing against light sources and just the hours of the day elapsing that they're that they're spending doing all this meticulous searching and stuff but but if you don't use traps that much if you use them sparingly then i think they can add some pizzazz to the game but if they just become ubiquitous then yeah then it just becomes an exercise and um <laughs> i don't know it it becomes boring to me if if that's all you're doing is if if traps are occurring uh as often as they're outlined in dungeons you know, like some of the procedures suggest i think that's too much but that's my preference i will if i mean uh i can certainly put together an episode where i uh detail a small wilderness encounter area or something and go through my procedures and it might be kind of fun but i am worried that it would be something that'd be really boring but um i'll, I'll see if i can put it together maybe lily can help are you willing to help lily hmm you want to help all right, now moving on to Jason's other call. Hey, Rob, Jason, again, I never finished the call to you about your Bugs episode where you address the pink phantom. And I think that's a very interesting point. And I think you articulated it very well, the advantages of granularity and the reason you would want that greater granularity. Sorry about the noise. It's raining outside and... Of course, the dog now wants to go out in the rain because he waited too long. But anyway, the yeah, you wanted to be out here, buddy. Go on. No, no, no. Go on. Anyway, I really like your your defense of granularity there, and hopefully, some other people will hear that. I've shared the podcast and pointed out that is a reason to listen. So maybe you'll get some other calls about that, but I, I, that, I think you mounted one of the better defenses I've heard of granularity versus 
advantage, disadvantage. So thank you for that, and I will talk to you soon. <laughs> I think I think everyone that's ever owned a dog can identify with that uh, <laughs> that, that little scene that Jason had with I don't know if it was Maddie or Gadget or whatever, but wanting to go, <laughs> go outside and then. Nope, it's raining out, or nope, it's snowing, it's too cold, I'm not going out there, um, <laughs> trying to get them to do it, um, that's hilarious, um, but yeah, thanks for the kind words, I appreciate it, I'm glad that what I was saying made sense to you, and thanks for recommending that to other people, I don't know if it will convince, um, uh, anyone else of, um, uh, or, or enlighten anyone to, um, to maybe understand a different point of view if they're if they are like avidly on board with the abstractions and um and just ease of mechanics winning the day as i said in the last episode i can see advantages to using that you know if you're if you're doing just like a one-off if you're teaching someone, uh, wanting to teach a, a simple game to people and get it to the table and um, have have mastery of a system occur, occur more quickly. Yeah, I can, I can get on board with, with all of that, but that's not the type of game I really want to play long term. It might be fun for a one-shot, you know, just for laughs kind of game, but, uh, but long term, I want my decisions as a player to have more nuance and depth and want them to be have meaningful effects in game i don't want it to just be hand waved away and say oh yeah you did all that but all you get is advantage or all the opponent gets is disadvantage um that's that's not the type of game i want to play if other people like that that's cool all right let's move on to daniel he's called in with some bug comments too Hey Rob, Daniel from Manus, keep calling in. I'm going to send this one via email, hopefully. <laughs> I had sent you a couple over Discord. I'll see if I can uh, find those and send them to you via email since you are not uh, on Discord yet. Anyways, I was, um, was listening to the episode on bugs, and man, I agree. Some of these bugs, <laughs> they're very powerful, especially for a low-level party. And sometimes they pop up in those low-level encounters because even though they have two, three hit die, they are, of course, you know, poisons or multiple attacks or paralysis or webs or there's that dancing spider. I don't know my head points that one is. But basically you've got all these things and then you fight them, like you say, and you, you get kneel of a treasure. Now, I thought I had got it out of the BX book, but I did check again just to make sure and I cannot find it. So perhaps, I don't know, maybe somebody listening <laughs> will be able to find it or maybe you will. Or maybe I made it up. But the way that I always do those types of monsters is if you encounter a spider, let's say, uh, as a wandering monster, and you defeat it, obviously it's not going to have any treasure on it. If you encounter a spider as a wandering monster and you like chase it back to finally, you know, and finally you're like running the game and you're just like, oh, you see some webs that skulls up there, and then you were to defeat it in the webs, they'd probably be no treasure because the spider's treasure type is nil, right? So that's all basically like what you're talking about. But. If I roll a room and I'm you know, using the BX system and I roll monster and treasure and then I roll and I get a spider that has nil for treasure type, what I do is I use the unguarded treasure table 
And I thought that's what it said to do, but <laughs> I cannot find where it says that. So that's the way I handle that. So, you know, that makes it a little bit better. So if that was actually the spider's lair and they had been rolled up as, you know, monster and treasure, then I would have put treasure in the room, you know, in that situation. But of course, you can also get a monster with no treasure, which is also, uh, you know, pretty uh, common. So, you know, either way, you might run into the spider with no treasure. Now, as far as using them as obstacles or traps, I really like that idea. I mean, even, I guess in 5e, they do that, right? In some level, they don't do spiders, but they do like a yellow mold and I think green slime and maybe some of the, maybe some of the oozes are, or the, uh, the brown molds, definitely the molds and the slimes are not monsters anymore in 5e. They're basically traps. And that's kind of cool. I mean, when I think about it, green slime kind of is a trap, right? <laughs> it's like it tries to fall on your head, and if it, it, I think it lands on you in a one or a two, which is basically what it takes off a trap, right? So in a way, green slime is 100% a trap, and I could totally see using that like that. So I don't see any reason why you couldn't, you know, step in a low, like not a pit that's like deep enough to fall into, but a, a little dugout pit, you know, full of, uh, you know, giant centipedes, right, who then try to immediately bite you, and if you fail your save... Now you're sick for a week or whatever that giant centipede poison does. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. But anyways, I think it's a really good idea and I like it a lot. Also, you were talking about the idea of talking about, you were talking about talking about uh, the idea of how you do your, your hex, filling your hexes and stuff. And I, I would love to hear a, a walkthrough of that. It sounds like you do something similar to me as far as using the BX stuff. So uh, I'd be curious to see what you do and uh, how that might aid me in my games. So thanks so much and I shall talk to you soon. Hey, thanks for the call, Daniel. I appreciate it. And that's, of course, Daniel from Bandit's Keep podcast, YouTube channel, also the Monsters and Treasure uh, podcast that he does with K.R. King. I had forgotten that 5e had broken the, the slimes and molds and things like that into a more kind of hazard category and put them in the DMG versus the Monster Manual. But I, I like that approach. With Treasure... I always kind of think of um, the treasure types listed for monsters. So, um, for instance, like um, orcs having treasure type D in BX. I think of that as being what you'd find in their lair. Like, that's the total treasure that you'd come across. And you could place it throughout their lair. It's not necessarily all in one big heap in the orc chieftain's uh, room or something or in a chest or something it, it could be spread out among all the orcs and stuff um, but I don't think of it as treasure that if you find two orcs wandering through the dungeon they're not going to have treasure type D right um, so that that's kind of where it's a little bit more confusing in BX as opposed to AD&D where there's a percent chance that when you encounter something, it's, it's their lair. It's not quite as clear in BX. Uh, and then they have this, this table that we've been talking about on page B52, where you roll to see if there's a, you know, what's in the room, if it's a monster, a trap, special, or empty, and then a second die roll indicates whether or not there's treasure present. And, if there's treasure present, I think you're supposed to use the treasure type, and that's where you get hosed by the bugs and stuff because it's always nil. Whereas if it's empty, 
then you use this unguarded treasure. And you could certainly use that in place of the nil result and make bugs at least have some potential incidental treasure that from uh, whatever victims and stuff that have succumbed to the, the hive of bugs <laughs> or the web of spiders or whatever could be uh, on some desiccate, desiccated corpses or just lying around or something. Um, or or maybe just the webs block some passage that branches off and, oh, there's some treasure back here. And you had to get past the spider to get to it and stuff. That all makes sense, and you could certainly use the unguarded treasure tables that are also present on B-52 to do that. Um, I do wonder, like, so it does say that, um, you know, use for, for monsters, if there's treasure present, use the treasure type. If it's empty, use the unguarded treasure. Well, what are you supposed to use for the trap? Hmm. Use unguarded the unguarded treasure table for that, too? I don't see where it says that. But, uh, yeah, anyway, uh, thanks for the calls, Daniel. Um, and, like I said to Jason, it sounds like both of you guys are interested in hearing how I, how I do procedures and stuff and for making an adventure locale in the wilderness or something. So yeah, I'll, I'll move that up on my, um, my episode idea thing and try to make it interesting. I'll try. All right. Now we got uh, one call here from a, a new caller, Joe from the Decahedron podcast. So take it away, Joe. Welcome to the penthouse, Bendar. Hey Rob, this is Joe from the Decahedron RPG cast. I just finished listening to your last two episodes and I had to chime in on one of the topics you discussed. But before I say that, let me start with, I love your podcast. I really do. <laughs> I, I need to start with that because in a second, I'm going to disagree with you and I want you to make sure I'm not a hater or something like that. All right. So let's get on with the disagreement. Pretty much it comes down to it to one word. You were talking about the games that use the advantage disadvantage mechanism as their primary, you know, at their core. And you called that a lazy design. Then the episode later, uh, you refined your statements a little bit, but you doubled down on that lazy word. And really, that's it's kind of a pejorative statement. And I wanted to come out and say, I don't think it's a matter of laziness. I think it is a matter of tailoring the game to create the experience sought after by a specific audience. And I just think that you're not that audience. It strikes me based on your comments about, you know, you want the player's decisions to matter. You know, they're they're taking the high ground or they choosing, you know, this weapon in this situation because of this lighting, whatever. And, and that's good. Those are all very strategic dis, uh, decisions to be made. And you want to be rewarded for your smart, clever thinking. And that's that's great. That's no problem. But there's other people people a little bit like me, who find all that to be a drag and a slowdown. And, you know, let's just get on with the story. Okay, we're going to have a fight. Oh, I hate fights. Even in movies, I hate fight scenes. It's like, okay, we know the good guy's going to win. Can we just skip ahead to that part? Like Tolkien wisely had Bilbo fall unconscious at the beginning of the Battle of the Five Armies and wake up when it was over. Uh, if only if only Peter Jackson could have learned that lesson. Anyway, um, yeah, so for me, it's the story's the thing. And okay, the good guys are going to win or they're going to lose. But all that other stuff in between, that's, that's, oh, that's just tedium. 
That's hideous tedium. Let's, okay, you're on high ground. That's a plus four. Oh, but the lighting's a little dim. That's a minus two. But you're using that weapon. He has that armor. So that's, I know that's, that's not fun. That's not fun for me, right? It might be fun for you. It probably is fun for you. It's definitely fun for some other people. I guess all I'm saying is that tailoring the game to my style of play and other people's style of play isn't a lazy design. It's a streamlined design to focus on what we want to focus on. Anyway, that's all I have to say. Thanks so, so much for your show. You're doing a great job. I'm still listening. Keep up the great work. Bye. Hey, Joe. Thanks for the call and thanks for the kind words. I'm glad that you enjoy the podcast and I hope you keep listening and calling in. And it's fine that you call in with... Uh, a disagreement that you have with me. That's, I, I actually like when there's a, a back and forth on podcasts and stuff. And a lot of the podcasts that I really like, I certainly don't agree with everything that a host or, or panel of people say. And I certainly don't expect anyone listening to my show to agree with everything I say. I mean, I think part of the reason these podcasts are interesting is because there's an exchange of ideas and back and forth and different perspectives on things. So yeah, the, the whole lazy thing, um, I agree with you completely that there are different approaches to game design. And if a game's sole intent is to be something that you use as, um, a pickup game when, when you don't have the whole group there or something, or you know, only half the people show up, or you're playing a one shot at a convention or something, and that's all this game is really designed to do is to just be something really easy that you can roll up a character, have a quick adventure, and wrap things up in three hours, and every you know it's complete. That's cool. That's what it's intended to do. Or if it's just something to be used as a, a game to introduce people to role-playing games and stuff like that, having really simple, basic mechanics and not really having the rules cover for... Uh, I mean, no rule set is going to cover for every contingency, but a thorough rule set will cover for things that are bound to come up in short order. So that's all, this is all fine and good. I mean, we wouldn't choose something like Rollmaster as a impromptu one-off <laughs> to a fill-in game at a role-playing session where, where several people couldn't make it. You'd choose something like The Black Hack or Into the Odd. And those games are fine for that. Um, the black hack especially, I would call a lazy design. And yeah, lazy is pejorative, and um, because I, I think it's incomplete. I think the game was kind of designed to be a fill-in, a replacement for your BX rules or your AD&D rules and I find them to be very incomplete. And the author probably knows that 
you're not going to be able to run the game for very long using this really bare-bones skeleton, unless you also have something like BX or AD&D to fall back on, because there's not even, there's no rules for, really, for exploration. There's no advice for creating adventures. There's no magic items. There's no, uh, I mean, it's really incomplete. And also, all there is is advantage and disadvantage. So, I mean, of course, you can hack the black hack, right? And many people have to create something with more nuance and more granularity. But rules is written, all you have to work with really as a referee is advantage and disadvantage. So there's three states. There's normal, there's disadvantage, and there's advantage. So if uh, I'm playing the game with Keith and both of our characters are being fired on from goblin archers from what would be the equivalent of long range in the black hack. I can't remember what the range bands are far away or something. And we both choose our actions and my character uh, sees that there's a four foot stone wall uh, partially, you know, in, in this area, this ruin of a, partially uh, a four-foot stone wall. And I say, all right, I'm going to run behind there, crouch behind it with my crossbow and return fire. And Keith says, I'm going to cast a spell. I'm going to cast a, a charm spell or something on, the, on one of the goblins. And the referee says, all right, so the goblins both get disadvantage because they're at long range to hit you. I'd be like, well, well wait a minute, <laughs> doesn't the stone wall do anything for me? And in the rules, um, there's really nothing to suggest that, how to, how to deal with it. Now, if you're an experienced referee, of course, you could make a ruling on the fly and just say, all right, well, in addition to disadvantage for being at long range, they're, they're also going to give you, uh, have a minus two to hit you because, you know, you're crouched down behind this stone wall. Or, the stone wall provides X amount of armor points to you or something like that. I mean, you can make a ruling to make it work. But as the game is presented, those suggestions aren't in there. And that's why I think it's a lazy design. The same thing would hold true for any kind of nuance in uh, performing some kind of out-of-combat maneuver or um, attempt at something. All there is is advantage and disadvantage. So it's either like you're attempting to scale a wall and it's either, well, it's just a wall or it's <laughs> like like a mirror, you know, and you get disadvantage or there's all kinds of handholds and you get advantage and there's nothing in between. You're attacked by a venomous creature and it's either deadly or you get disadvantage Weak, where you get advantage, and normal, where you get no adjustment to your saving throw. There's no graduated levels that you can have within there. Oh, it's, you get plus one on your save, you get plus two on your save, you get plus three, you get minus one, minus two, whatever. You know, there's no nuance. Uh, so, yeah, I just don't find that to work for me. So it's a lazy design in that I'd have to... Uh, 
hack it to make it work for me. And the designer knows that those types of things are going to come up, but they just feel like, well, everyone else is going to feel the same way I am, and they're going to hand wave it. And that might be a good design for some people. It sounds like for you, that's a good design because you don't want to deal with any of that stuff. To you, combat especially is tedious and boring. And those are also pejorative ways to describe things, right? <laughs> Lazy, boring, tedious, you know, that they're all pejoratives. And that's what we, I mean, we fall back on using terms like that when we're describing things that we don't like or don't appreciate. So we can nitpick about what's a pejorative term or not, but we're both using them. And that's, to me, that's fine to describe something that we don't like. Uh, so to, from my point of view, something like the black hack is a lazy design. Uh, from your point of view, it might be a good design. Uh, it might be something that you really like and... You know, you don't want to deal with experience points. You don't want to deal with uh, these different tactical scenarios. Maybe you want even even more streamlined. Maybe you want combat to be each side rolls a d6, whichever one's higher wins the fight. Um, and maybe you get a bonus if you have numbers or a bonus if you have higher, more hit dice in the fight or more levels in the fight or whatever. But you just resolve it all down to one die roll. And that might be a good design for you. And for me, that, that would be something really hand-wavy abstract. And, and I'd be like, well, so nothing we do can alter the outcome of this? Uh, so to me, that would not be satisfying. It would be really lazy. But for someone else, it might be a great thing. Hey, we can do away with all the tedious combat? Cool, let's do it. Um, so yeah, that's, I think it is all matter perspective and that's all I'm really saying is to me exclusively having just this advantage disadvantage mechanic as the end all is something that I feel like has become ubiquitous because a lot of designers just see it and oh, well, it, a lot of people like it, so let's do it. The other thing that puzzles me is you talk about how you want to skip the fights or skip the combat in games or movies or whatever because the the good guys are going to win. It's boring. It's tedious. Let's just get back to the story. And I don't understand how the combat isn't part of the story. To me, if you're playing a game, everything that happens in the game is part of the story. And I don't know how you exclude combat from being part of the story. It's... Um, it's, I don't, maybe I'm not understanding how you're talking about story, but for me, everything that happens in the game is part of the story of, of this adventuring party. Um, and I don't know what kind of games you play, Joe, if you're playing games that are exclusively about, uh, solving mysteries or intrigue and political maneuvering or being some kind of space trucker, merchants and stuff. I don't know. Uh, and in which case, I don't think something like a D&D &D game would be a very good uh, rule set to choose to play any of those things. There are probably a lot, a lot of other games that would be better suited to it where 
combat isn't <laughs> doesn't make up like a third of the rules um and all the most of the scenarios designed for it um involve a lot of usually involve a lot of combat or at least involve a lot of creatures that you are trying to overcome they're the main obstacles to to get around it's usually not solving a mystery or something but uh yeah and i mean combat would be really tedious and boring if the outcome was known if 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 it was certain yeah it would be boring but in good movies and in good literature and good adventure gaming those outcomes aren't certain and the things that people do in combat can alter the the outcomes or have a chance to improve their chances and or or lessen their chances if they're really foolhardy and what happens in combat can be uh can alter future events you you suffer setbacks you lose comrades you expend some of your resources you're wounded all these things can now change what's going to happen in the future oh so and so is uh, is is grievously wounded so we can't go on we ha- now we have to return to base and heal up that changes the whole circumstances or oh we we have to go on there's a kind of a a time frame we have to accomplish this goal by but we can't just leave them here uh grievously wounded so we have to leave yet another comrade behind to protect him in in this state and that changes the whole ongoing adventure um or i've used all my arrows so now I can't use my bow anymore unless I find more arrows. I mean, all these things change the future circumstances. So to me, all those things can be interesting uh, game elements, interesting story lines. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, and if you just don't like combat and fights, that, you know, hey, that's cool. We all have our, our preferences and stuff, and our games certainly don't revolve around combat. It plays a big role, but there's also just raw exploration. There's social interaction with NPCs and, and monsters and faction play and, um, and uh, you know, just all kinds of different things that come into, into the game. Uh, but for me, all of it is part of the story, so I don't know what... Um, and, yeah, like I said, if, if every, every fight was just the stormtroopers always miss so why are we bothering with the stormtroopers anymore i I get that but uh, to me you could say the same thing about any aspect of the game if it's if you make it boring it's boring (laughs) if it (laughs) you know okay but it's it's just sounds like we have maybe very different perspectives and uh preferences in games and that's fine that's cool like I always say, play the games you want to play, enjoy the style that you enjoy, and yeah, knock yourself out. Um, I just, I come from, I came to uh, role-playing games from war games, and and I like things like military history and stuff, and and 
the, the uh, people I game with also kind of have that background as well. So that's what we like and appreciate. And uh, so, yeah, that's just the way it is, I guess. Uh, let's see. All right, so before I get a bunch of hate mail, <laughs> hate voicemails about uh, me bashing the black hack and stuff, uh, hey, if you like that game, that's great. And if you've played that game and... We played it for two years and never had to use anything from BX or AD&D to f- fill it out. And that's cool. You know, if you'd enjoy that game, that's great. I'm ju- All I'm saying is it wouldn't be a satisfying game for me to play. I'd, I'd probably, like any game, I could have fun playing it. If I'm playing with fun people that I enjoy hanging out with, we're going to have a good time. But for me, a rule set... Um, can set like a ceiling on how much fun you have um, or a floor for how bad it can get. <laughs> and uh, I just don't think I'd, I might have fun playing with, you know, these, these four people or whatever, but we'd probably have more fun playing a game I like better. You know what I mean? So that's all I'm saying. And it's just not, to me, I don't see it as a complete rule set. I think it was just presented as this, all right, if you like really hand-wavy stuff, you don't want to count arrows, you don't want to count experience points, you don't want to deal with uh, different tactical things, and all you want to do is roll versus attributes, and everyone does the same damage. It's based on class. Um, doesn't matter if your fighter's wielding a dagger or a two-handed, well, I guess two-handed weapons that do more damage. A battle axe or a, a dagger, a fighter's just going to do a D8 damage. Uh, and a... Uh, and a thief's going to do D6, you know, it, whatever. That's If that's your jam, rock out to it. It's just not my jam. It wouldn't be something I'd enjoy. So if you, uh, thanks to um, Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast, to Daniel from Bandit's Keep and Monsters and Treasure, and Joe from Decahedron, thanks for your calls. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you want to um, chime in on any topics we discussed here, past episodes, Ideas for future episodes, um, send me a voicemail to my email at bigbalboni at gmail.com. That's B-I-G-B-A-L-B-O-N-I at gmail.com. And I will play them in some future episode. And until I talk to you again, don't go down in a heap.